Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. So this morning's passage obviously is Psalm 1. Um, As we turn there, people in our world, but in particular in our country, are unhappy at this point in history. Uh, The most recent Gallup poll found that Americans are the least happy they've ever been. From politics to their daily lives, Americans have little joy and optimism. Uh, To our credit, at this point, right, the last two years have been somewhat brutal. Yes? Uh, We have experienced a lot. A global pandemic, schools and places of work shut down, Uh, some of our financial portfolios were altered dramatically, job loss, social unrest, the George Floyd uh, riots and protests, uh, the 2020 election, failed attempt of an insurrection, political division. This is a lot for the last two years. That's a lot that we've endured. So recent findings make sense. And there's not a lot of optimism as well in that Gallup poll. We're actually one of the, at one of the least hopeful points in this nation's history. However, even prior to all this, the 2019 World Happiness Report found that people around the world are becoming less happy. Uh, the top 10 countries were Finland, Denmark, Norway, Iceland, Netherlands, Switzerland, Sweden, New Zealand, Canada, and Australia for happiness. So basically a bunch of cold places and uh, and then a couple tropical type things. Uh, But from 2010 to 2018, negative feelings, specifically worry, sadness, and anger have been rising around the world up 27% in those eight years. Economist Jeffrey D. Sachs refers to this, the U.S. is suffering an epidemic of addictions. And researcher Jean Twang largely blames for the worrying mental health trends among U.S. adolescents. Uh, In in her chapter of this report, she argues that screen time is displacing activities that are key to our happiness, like in-person social contact. Uh, 45% of adolescents are online, quote-unquote, almost constantly, almost half of them. And the average high school senior spends six hours a day texting on social media or on the internet. These findings, I didn't didn't share the graph, but it's interesting that uh, they've tested that the things we do that make us contribute to our joy and happiness, uh, every single one has nothing to do with the screen. And anything that has to do with the screen, even listening to music, uh, that was actually one of the lowest contributors, actually one of the largest contributors to against our happiness, which is interesting. Maybe they're like me, that we listen to sad music. Um, I don't know. Or like Eli, who listens to emo music. Uh, <laughs> but no, uh, so that's for adolescents in our age. The study continues, we're hooked on more than just technology, though. According to researcher Steve Sussman, around half of Americans suffer from at least one addiction. I would venture that that's larger, actually. We're just not honest. Some of the most prevalent, he says, are alcohol, food, and work. 
which each affect around 10% of adults, as well as drugs, gambling, exercise as an addiction, shopping, and sex. Now this morning's passage focuses on happiness. The translation I'm utilizing along with a couple others use the phrase, happy are those who, but perhaps you guys use a translation like an NIV or ESV that says blessed are those, or if you're a little more formal, blessed. I like the NLT's way of translating it though. It says, oh, the joys of those who, and then it starts the song. Or the Common English Bible says the truly happy person doesn't do blank. I think those are helpful. But for the sake of this morning's sermon, we'll be utilizing the term happy. And so let's begin by defining happiness. Uh, Charles Schultz, uh, creator of the Peanuts comic strip, said that happiness is a warm puppy. I'd agree with that. Um, But no, Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines happiness as feeling pleasure and enjoyment because of your life, situation, etc. So if this is happiness, feeling pleasure and enjoyment because of our life or our situation in life, how does one obtain it? Because that is, you know, that was written into one of the three quote-unquote inalienable rights that our founders believed um, or theorized that all humans are entitled to, the pursuit of happiness. So how does one obtain it? According to Karl Marx, the first requisite for the happiness of the people is the abolition of religion. Albert Camus theorized that you will never be happy if you continue to search for what happiness consists of. You will never live if you're looking for the meaning of life. In other words, you get so caught up in the search that you'll never be content in what there is. Leo Tolstoy wrote, if you want to be happy, be. And now that statement's quite vague, but I know Tolstoy was a follower of Jesus, and so I want to give him the benefit of the doubt, but I think people can twist that however they may want. But as we take a look at this morning's passages, uh, passage, we'll look at happiness in three contexts. According to our world, uh, happiness found in ourselves and happiness found in our God. So let's start with happiness in our world. Now the world offers a few dominant definitions of happiness as the means to obtain it. So what about someone like the Buddha? Buddha said there's no path to happiness. Happiness is the path. Happiness is a journey, not a destination. It sounds nice. It sounds like something I'd read on a bumper sticker or on a tweet. But to Buddha, happiness is not something to be obtained or grow in or arrive at, but a state of being while simultaneously being in a state of pursuing. It is only in the journey. There is no arriving. There is no final destination. You are there. You have it if you are pursuing. And now while some of this does overlap with the Christian worldview, you'll see that what, or more, more importantly, who we are pursuing happiness in is what dis, uh, differentiates us between us 
in the worldview of the Buddha. Now, if we look at a more atheistic worldview, we see that we define happiness simply as a biological appetite being met. Sigmund Freud wrote, what we call happiness in the strictest sense comes from the satisfaction of the needs which have been so damned up to a high degree. Damned, D-A-M-M, meaning they're just being withheld, these desires. We're not allowing ourselves to fulfill them. And once we finally scratch that itch, there is happiness. But see, Freud was honest. He admitted that within his naturalistic worldview, without a god, without a deity, happiness is fleeting, its purpose is momentary, and it's simply to meet our temporary biological impulses. And then that's it. The box is checked. To scratch that itch, to make that impulse purchase, to feel that rush, to reach that euphoria. What other means to happiness are there according to the world? Another big one right now is social justice. Compassion, serving others, serving the less fortunate. The Dalai Lama wrote, happiness is not ready-made, it comes from your own actions. They continued, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. Now again, this sounds loving, nice, good, honorable, at face value. But if you really dissect it, there's a problem. Timothy Keller, in his book, Making Sense of God, critiques this worldview as so. He says, Russian philosopher Vladimir Sololyov sarcastically summarized the ethical reasoning of secular humanism like this. Therefore, we must love one another. Keller writes, the second clause does not follow from the first. If it was natural for the strong to eat the weak in the past, why aren't people allowed to do it now? Given the secular view of the universe, the conclusion of love or social justice is no more logical than the conclusion to hate or destroy. These two sets of beliefs in a thoroughgoing scientific materialism and in a liberal humanism simply do not fit with one another. Each set of beliefs is evidence against the other. Many would call this deeply, a deeply incoherent view of the world. And what Keller's summarizing here and commenting on the view of the Dalai Lama, but just in general, our secular culture at this point, is that social justice really has no grounds apart from Jesus. There really is no point in a naturalistic worldview to take care of the weak, the ones who are vulnerable, the ones who are more needy. It doesn't line up with the way by which we believe we got here. In reality, if we're honest, and I think Freud was honest in that regard, and some other leading uh, atheist thinkers would admit that there is no reason for social justice in our worldview. That truly, Jesus is what gives social justice meaning. But apart from him, it is but delaying one's death. Happiness in and according to our world is fleeting. It's also actually quite deceptive, right? 
The intellectually honest atheist or agnostic must admit that if there is no good, or if there is no God, then happiness, as Freud said, is nothing but a temporary biological craving being met. And this craving can and ought to be met by whatever means necessary, despite the harm it might bring to others. Now, this worldview of do whatever makes you happy often comes with the caveat, quote unquote, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, right? We kind of hear this a lot. Yeah, just let them be happy. You do you. As long as you're not hurting anyone else, go for it. And while that sounds respectful, one, the, as long as you, you're not hurting anyone else, it's a really subjective and relative caveat that who's to say what hurts someone and what kind of hurt? Are we talking bodily? Are we talking emotional, mental, spiritually? Are we talking societal? Are we talking for your community? What does hurt mean? But if they're honest, it has absolutely, absolutely no ground to stand on if there is no God. In a naturalistic worldview apart from a God, as Keller pointed out, there is no reason to look out for others. We ought to do what we want, when we want, however we want, with no regards for others. So happiness in our world and according to our world is fleeting, it's missing the point, it's misplaced, and it might even be purposeless. Hence Ecclesiastes constantly using the phrase, it's all vanity, it's all chasing after the wind. The second source of happiness we'll look at is happiness within ourselves begin to look at the passage more particularly. Another way, another way uh, worldview says that happiness is to be found within ourselves. Now we see this in self-help books. Self-help books are everywhere. They're very prevalent. They're usually some of the top-selling books. Uh, and even within the church, many popular pastors, unfortunately, write more self-help books rather than theological or gospel-centered books. Now this view is not old that happiness can be found within ourselves. Aristotle, over two millennia ago, wrote, happiness depends upon ourselves. And just a few centuries ago, in the 19th century, the father of existentialism, Soren Kierkegaard, wrote, a man who, was as, who as a physical being is always turned toward the outside, thinking that his happiness lies outside him, finally turns inward and discovers that the source is within him. And Helen Keller wrote, your success and happiness lie in you. Resolve to keep happy, therefore, and your joy and you shall form an invincible host against difficulties. Let's look at what the psalmist wrote here. If you start in verse 1, the second line, there's a, there's a thread throughout here where half of this is contrasted as the people who are not truly happy as opposed to those who are truly happy. Now verse one, happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seats of scoffers. You jump down to verse four, he says the wicked are not so, meaning they're not, he's countering them, contrasting them from the way of the righteous. He says, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. 
but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, a few things here about his comments on the wicked. The first verse, where it says, they're the ones who do not follow, uh, the ones who follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path of the sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers, this is the criteria for the unrighteous, for the unhappy. That they take the path that sinners tread, they sit in the seat of scoffers. Tremper Longman wrote that scoffers or mockers are the most egregiously evil people since they do not only sin, but they also turn around and mock the innocent, those who do not. And so if you meet those benchmarks, if you follow the advice of the wicked, if you take the path that sinners tread, if you sit in the seat of scoffers or mockers, what is the result? That's what verse 4 is. They are not fruitful. They are like chaff. That, wind, uh, that the wind drives away. And therefore, the result is the wicked won't stand in judgment. They will not be able to stand before God. They will, but they will fall. Sinners in the congregation of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's this, the unhappy life is this chaff, this constant movement. There is no ground for them. There's no roots there, right? They're always seeking the next high. Nothing ever truly satisfies them. And this chaff is placed in contrast to the tree that we'll see for the happiness of those who are truly happy in God. There's literally no connection to the earth, though, for this chaff. Think of fall leaves after they've fallen, and and, and as we're approaching winter, those leaves will go wherever the wind takes them. That is the life of the ungodly. James Howe, a fellow pastor, wrote, the good life is defined by society in ways that mimic the good life God offers, yet different enough to fool us. And this is where it's tricky for us. Then we are led to a vapid life that pays little attention to God and leaves us hollow inside. Wealth, pleasure, leisure, not evil, but a bit out of kilter with God's adventure, which would be the richness of generosity and prayer, the pleasure of service and worship, and the leisure of Sabbath rest and silence in the presence of God. He concludes, society says, don't break the law, maximize your portfolio, travel, relish the party circuit, but the psalm shakes its head and pities us for missing out on the quote-unquote delight in the law of the Lord. That's why Paul in Ephesians 4, 14 wrote, we must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole joined and knit together by every ligament with, each, uh, with which it is equipped as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. You see, happiness in ourselves and on our own is fleeting. It is temporary. Living our best life now, or you doing you, or things of that sort, 
are not what the psalm is calling us for. And nor is what Paul is saying here. No, seek your happiness in our God. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. Again, looking at verse 1, he says, Happy are those, and then if you jump down to verse 2, it continues, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season. And their leaves do not wither, and all they do, they prosper. And then down at verse 6, the first part, the psalmist says, The Lord watches over the way of the righteous. So, in verse 2, you see the requirements for the truly happy. He says, they delight in the law, and they meditate on it day and night. I don't know about you, but I'm not really about meditating on the law and uh, delighting in the law. But that's who the psalmist says is the truly happy person. Now, Tremper Longman again elaborates that this is, he's bringing out this vibrancy, this life, uh, this pr- productivity, this health, this prosperity, but it's not necessarily in the way of the world as the world sees prosperity. You see, God's economy and our economy often work differently. Sometimes, Growth comes through loss. Gain comes through subtraction. And sometimes, the opposite is true as well. But we're, we're in a world and, and taught to think that if the graph is going up, things are good, and if they're going down, that's bad, economically speaking. But no, with God, it's not always so. You see, our source and our economy in God's kingdom works differently. Rebecca Blair Young wrote, Happy is a tree. The happy are a tree, contrasted to the chaff. She said this tree is planted, it's secure, it's rooted. It's never lacking because the roots dig deep. They're never thirsting for shallow pleasures, not takers of the world, but contributors in due season. That's why the psalmist says they have plenty of fruit. They yield their fruit in the season that God ordains for them. See, in the Old Testament scriptures, happiness or or being blessed is equated, it's drawing back to the symbolism of harmony, this Eden-like harmony, harmony with one another and with creation itself. In his book, Preaching the Psalms, Clint McCann wrote, For Psalm 1, happiness involves not enjoying oneself, but light in the teaching of God. The goal of life is to be found not in self-fulfillment, but in praising God. Prosperity does not involve getting what one wants. Rather, it comes from being connected to the source of life. Can anyone name... Uh, the beginning, recite the beginning of the Westminster Catechism, uh, Confession of Faith. Does anyone know it? It states, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That our purpose in enjoying Him, our purpose as humanity, 
is to glorify God, and in so doing, we find our joy. That we were made for him. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 34, 8 writes, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are those who take refuge in him. I love the way C.S. Lewis put this in Mere Christianity. He said, God made us. He invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol. Well, this was back then. Not so much anymore, right? Uh, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel of our spirits. We're designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it's so good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion, specifically faith in Jesus. He says, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it just, it's not there. It's not what we were made for. One more quote. Sedona from the 7th century, wrote, let us too do this, meditating continuously on the things of God, and by means of the Lord's law, let our wills be grafted on to him. You see, we read this, and the question comes, who truly does what the happy are called to do? Well, us who are on this side of the New Testament know that Jesus fulfilled this, that Jesus embodied this, that Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus in every way abided by this. His delight was in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditated day and night. He didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it, to live it. And as a result, he was like a tree planted by streams of water, and he yielded fruit in due season. His leaves didn't wither, and all he did, he prospered. But again, remember that the way he prospered, the means by which he prospered, his people doubted. His people saw it as a failure. They were disheartened when he was crucified. And even after he resurrected, they had doubt. And even as the centuries have gone on, we have our doubts. We wonder if there's prosperity. We, we wonder if God is winning. We wonder, is God on our side? Is God for us? Is the kingdom of darkness going to prevail? If we're honest, we have those thoughts, or at least live as if those thoughts are our deepest convictions. But so Jesus achieved this on our behalf. Jesus lived this way. And that's why those of us who are in Jesus no longer have to, this is not our standard on our own anymore. It is the standard, but Jesus fulfills it. Jesus stands in our place, is what the New Testament scriptures tell us. 
so that when God looks down at us, he sees those of us who have our faith in and are following him, he sees not us missing the mark here, not us living more as if happiness is found in our world or in ourselves. No, he sees us as the spotless Jesus, the Jesus who is truly happy. And so we no longer have to live up to that standard out of an endeavor to earn that position before God. But no, we can live in joyful uh, acceptance and followership of Jesus, knowing that he did this for us. That's why Sedona said, let us too do this. Let us follow Jesus in this, meditating continuously on the things of God and by means of the Lord's law. Let our wills be grafted on to him. Let our wills be grafted onto him. You see, as we place our faith in Jesus and begin to follow him, begin to place our ways, our wills, our ideas, our goals, our dreams, our hopes, our ambitions in submission to the way of Jesus, into God's categories of right and wrong, of good and evil, of righteous and unrighteous, of wise and unwise, of loving and unloving, Man, I think of, I picture the illustration of just a back, like for a chiropractor, that the back is all out of whack. And as we place it in submission to the head that is Jesus, God is re-straightening that backbone. He's placing our life in congruence with the head that is, in, that is Jesus. So maybe you hear these words and you're like, yeah, that's not, that's not me. Me too. Me too. I don't do this. I don't meditate on this every day and every night. There's probably too many nights a week I fall asleep to TV rather than meditating on the scriptures or a comic book or something or a crime thriller novel and not the truths of God's word. But know that as we continue to place our life in submission to Jesus, as we continue to seek to follow him, The Holy Spirit will bring our life in congruence to the way of Jesus. That's why Paul in Philippians 2 says, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for at the same time it's God who is at work in you. That as we follow him in some mysterious way, God is intricately helping us follow him and become more like Jesus. That's how we pursue happiness. It's not in our world. It's not found in our own bodily appetites. Those are means, but they're meant to be shadows of the true source of our happiness. Our happiness is to be found in our maker. That's why the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I'm going to invite Aaron up to conclude this service with a song. As we uh, conclude with this time of musical worship, I do want to remind us of a couple things, but uh, Aaron's going to play an instrumental for a little bit here, just to encourage us to prayerfully spend a few moments reflecting on what we've heard from God's Word, where we're at, And perhaps that means for you uh, confession or repentance.
or perhaps it means praising God, expressing gratitude towards Him, and utilize this time to be in God's presence as the psalmist encourages us. If you're feeling guilt or conviction, or if you're feeling joy and happiness, or somewhere in the middle, I encourage each of us, take the time, taste and see that the Lord is good. And happy are those who take refuge in Him. She's coming to... (laughs) And then lastly, stay right here. Stay right here. Uh, We'll also... Uh, This is also a time to uh, sacrificially give. You can either utilize the Church Center app or we have our giving baskets. And then um, towards the end, we will sing a song together. Amen. Let's... uh... Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship, or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.